Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elite, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world, and the coming age of the machine. Tuesday, 5th of July 2023, was, apparently, the hottest day ever recorded. It wasn't the day on which the hottest temperature was recorded, although there were some very hot places on that day. Rather, it was the day on which according to the US National Centre for Environmental Prediction, the average global air temperature reached 17.18 degrees centigrade, surpassing the record of 17.01 centigrade, which had been set the previous day. A month later, the oceans hit their hottest ever recorded temperature, breaking a record set in 2016. The whole earth is heating up and it is doing so with remarkable and alarming speed. To borrow the title of a Naomi Klein book, this changes everything. But we do need to be clear and careful here. Humans have been transforming the earth for millennia and the earth itself is never still. So, how does climate change fit into the bigger picture? How have humans transformed the earth through history? How has the earth transformed us? And what can we learn from the past to help us cope with the future? Peter Frankopan is Professor of Global History at the University of Oxford. His book The Silk Roads was a dazzlingly fresh take on world history and his latest book, weighing in at over 600 pages, tells the story of the earth transformed. Peter, welcome to Reading Our Times. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. There are two parallel and closely intertwined themes in your book, how the physical environment has changed human history and how human history has changed our physical environment. And I want to begin with the first of these. I guess the first thing to be clear about is that the Earth is very much a moving platform, as it were. There's never been a time when the Earth has simply been a passive, immobile stage on which we've strutted our stuff. Can you start by giving us some examples in which the Earth just changes and has changed over the period in which humans have been walking on it? Well, I don't know why we have to start with where humans have been walking on it. I mean, we're blinking the eye in the life of the planet. and I think that's one of the challenges with history is that, I suppose for fairly obvious reasons, we begin our understanding of the past. There's a little bit, you know, people have heard about Neanderthals. They know there were multiple different hominid species. But, you know, in geological time, we're completely insignificant. And in fact, even as a species, uh, we're not enormously exciting, apart from the ways in which we have changed our environments around us more than any other animal or plant in history. So I guess the first question is, why do we start with human history and, and how things have changed since we've been moving around? Lots of my colleagues will argue about exactly when that moment even is anyway. You know, at what point humans become really human, at what point we move from the fossil record to think about Homo sapiens as being a specific breakpoint that's conjectural and highly abstract. And I suppose one question is, does it really matter where we put that line in the sand? So I think it's it's more that the starting point is that that world that we live in, the world we all live in today, 
has been changed by massive shifts in its environmental signatures, tectonic plates, geologies over time. And we're the great beneficiaries of climate change. I write at the beginning of my book, there have been five mass extinctions in time. The most famous one is the annihilation of the dinosaurs. So it's not just the world is changing now. It's that, as you absolutely rightly say, Nick, it's been always changing. The things that are different today are the speed of change. And second, the fact we are involved in some of those changes ourselves. So there are lots of reasons why the world's environmental patterns and particularly its climate changes but we're we're part of those but in terms of using resources particularly water that's something we're doing ourselves at what point in the records of human history or prehistory do we see evidence of of the earth of the climate transforming that human history i mean you mentioned earlier on in the book evidence for a mega drought in 2200 bc and then there's a famous collapse of civilizations in Eastern Mediterranean, 1200 BC. Does it go before that? Can we trace it earlier in the record? Sure. There are things that dramatically affect our natural environment, specific individual events, massive floods. The flood of Noah, probably the most famous one of all, that's not just in the Quran or and in the Torah and in the Bible, the book of Genesis, that flood event across Mesopotamia, where it's recorded in Mesopotamian chronicles in Egypt as well, Probably it's paralleled with something in China roughly the same time, may not be exactly the same event. So we've had single events like that, volcanic eruptions. People maybe know about the Minotaur and the cultures and civilizations on Crete that are destroyed partly by a massive tidal wave connected to the explosion of Thera or Santorini, the volcano in, in the Aegean. But often those are the kind of things that play out well when you're writing a movie script. Everyone understands the sort of sudden shock But even in the case of Santorini or Thera, the volcanic eruption, probably the more important consequence wasn't just the loss of people's lives in Crete, but it seems to have had some kind of impact on the variola pathogen that is the pathogen that underpins smallpox. And we see that because we see smallpox transition contemporary to, or just after the Santorini eruption. In fact, we see one of the pharaohs represented with pockmarks all over him. So lots of things happen with these signature events. I think what happens more often is that you have long periods of drought, long periods of excessive rains. And so if you step away from pandemic disease, mass flooding, single events, or volcanoes, the challenge isn't always about the change of environmental patterns or climate patterns or weather extreme conditions. It's about ability to adapt. And if you're a small village living on the side of a river, you can cope if there's floods, you know, you can work out ways to to manage. That's very difficult if you're a city like Babylon, or Nineveh, or Uruk, or Lagash, or cities in Mesopotamia, where populations quickly go up into the tens of thousands, if not higher. And as we've learned from the pandemic, things that are big can break down very, very quickly. So you've got two different things. One is the sort of single sudden event, which can be hugely difficult to cope with. Although, like I mentioned, sometimes the long-term consequences are more dramatic and important than the short-term ones. But obviously, the moments where you have vulnerability are around whether you're able to adapt and cope with, with things that you're not used to. So stability is the key. Before we leave this particular topic, I'm curious to know whether you think that the Noachide flood to which you referred maps onto an identifiable historical event. So as a historian, the question is always, What's the audience and what's the reception? And to some extent, the thing that's most interesting to me about those floods, of which there are obviously signatures in tree ring data, in fossilised pollen, is why they're written down. And the key in almost every single written culture 
that talks about these horror events is not to tell you that they happened, but to tell you why they happened. And the reason why they always happen is because humans were behaving selfishly, unsustainably, greedily, treating people badly, or were led by bad rulers. And that correlation mm. of benign conditions and morality is why all religions have an environmental and ecological framework to them. So that's the same in the Indic religions, in in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Jainism, the Sinic religions and pathways in East Asia. And we have those all in the Abrahamic faiths too. We've, we see them also in West Africa and in, and in Mesoamerica as well, where there is an idea that you need to earn the respect of the gods and the gods up in the skies, not surprisingly. That's where the sun beats hard and where the rains come from. So when you're punished, there's a reason why you're being punished. For what it's worth, it's not what you asked, Nick. But you know that looks quite similar to some of the Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, which looks like a recognisable format of a religion to me, where you have saints, you have religious leaders who are promising the apocalypse. Sometimes religions are right. I'm not saying that flippantly, but those hallmarks to a historian look very recognisable of identifying the reason why we're all going to burn to death or starve is because of bad, selfish decisions by bad, selfish, in this case, rich people. You're right. There's an extraordinarily modern feel to so many of those religious stories about the way in which human morality impacts our shared environmental context. We will come to that. I want to pick up the causation point, which I think is particularly interesting. Now, you warn in the book about the obvious dangers of historical determinism. There is clearly a link there between environmental changes in human history, but we don't want to fall into the mistake that it's a fully determinist link. Now, this is a vast and unwieldy question, but can you trace what you think that link is? Well, that's probably above my pay grade. I mean, I think it's that sometimes with history, people want simple solutions. You know, Henry VIII, this fat English king, his decisions have lots of wives, meant that somehow Britain became a global empire because at the same time as having lots of wives, he built the navy and, and therefore, here we go, Britannia rules the waves. You know, that's partly because books, podcasts, TV programmes, films can be quite blunt instruments. People want things that are simple. And so it's quite difficult to put nuance into these arguments. You know, In history, there are lots of different factors with all of these things. There has been some literature around the fact that cultures and empires fell because it rained a lot or because it didn't rain at all. And there might be something in that, but you've got to pin down exactly what, why, how. And I guess Mm. one of the questions it comes down to is, are you able to adapt? How resilient can you be under pressure? And what happens to, particularly what happens to elites when there are shortages? And, you know, as the great Amartya Sen, who won the Nobel Prize for economics, you know, the, the problem normally comes with shock of any kind, in fact, weather and climate are quite correlated to production of agrarian products. So if there's a shock, what usually happens is that people react in what is actually quite a rational way. They start to hoard things. We saw that with the pandemic. People hoard loo paper. And so there are fights in supermarket aisles because people want to buy hundreds of rolls for themselves because they're literally, in this case, shit scared. And so that makes a crisis worse. It produces mm. price spikes. I'm being slightly flippant talking about loo rolls, but when it comes to food... Uh, Food tends to be inflationary. The prices tend to reward speculators and hoarders. If you're able to use capital to acquire it, you then sit on it in your barn because you know the prices are going to go up. That, of course, hurts the people who are poorest and most at risk. Often when famine takes hold and inflation kicks in, pathogen and disease follow. And then then you get into a doom spiral where you can have, like in Bengal, 
hundreds of thousands, millions, in fact, in some reckonings, tens of millions of people starving to death. So some this of it was the 1943 uh, famine, wasn't it, that Sen made a study of? In the second half of the 18th century. And in fact, looking through the materials for India in particular, you see this again and again, not just in Bengal, but where you have lots of people in one place, you need everything to go right all the time. And we've seen that ourselves, that if you put container ships in the wrong place, or they can't unload or load in big ports in China or elsewhere, then supply chains spike, they put pressure on, you find the cost of living crisis that can come quickly too. So essentially, stability is the kind of golden standard by which governments and states can flourish. So the things I'm most interested in are states that last for quite a long time, and ones that are able to constantly navigate those kinds of risks. And there are a few mm. headline states that do that. One is the Byzantines. They survive for a thousand years, almost no inflation. Broadly speaking, the price of a loaf of bread is the same over the course of about a thousand years. And this is a world that is changing, not just climatologically, but also in terms of all the kind of rises and falls of neighbours. And that speaks to a high level of administrative and bureaucratic expertise. And other empires like the Mongols, and the Ottomans are also quite long running. And it's no surprise, I think, to me that those are the three most denigrated empires in, in Western historiography. You know, if you say the word Byzantine, that's not a not good a compliment, thing. is it? And not if you're in, the, in Parliament. Uh, Mongols, likewise, synonymous only with violence and sexual violence in particular. And the Ottomans, you know, the sick man of Europe. But actually, these were three ultra stable, ultra sophisticated worlds. And we should probably spend a bit more time thinking about those in Europe. We do lots of things really well. You know, these last few hundred years in terms of science and technology, innovation, etc., global empires for their sins as well as the benefits they brought. But there's something about Western Europe in particular that is hugely fractious and hugely volatile. And that's also a bad thing. One more quick question on the relationship between environment, stability and democracy. Picking up on the Amartya Sen point, he famously made the case that there hasn't been a famine in a functioning democracy because the signals given back to those who run the country when there is severe shortage of food means that they can no longer hold power. Do you think that democracy aids the stability of polities to resist environmental challenges or as some might say at the moment, it's actually a problem? It's a really good question. I think our framework of the 20th century would make that all sound absolutely logical. And it's right, totalitarian regimes, the damage they did ecologically, environmentally, are catastrophic compared to democracies. So we look at Soviet Union, or China under Mao, or Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, and the disasters that flowed you know, led to deaths of millions, tens of millions of people, again, through famine, mismanagement, and huge ecological damage. So it sounds totally plausible. It sort of slightly gives a free pass to what we would think of in the West, or some people think of in the West as benign empires that are not responsible for doing those. So we think, for example, of Britain and the United States are being the two ultimate democracies. I mean, India is the biggest one. But, you know, let's say you think about Britain and, and the US. Is it right that we are less responsible, more concerned, more capable of dealing with these kinds of changes? Well, that takes a leap of faith. You know, the United States was built on the full extermination of vast amounts of the indigenous populations, some through disease and through overwork, some through slavery. But the indigenous populations of America were entirely pushed out by immigrants from from Europe. And United Kingdom, we built a British empire by enslaving people, by remodeling landscapes, and by mass human suffering. So 
It's nice to come out the other side and go, well, we're democratic and we now have full voting patterns, you know, but those look pretty recent to me. So I think we've got to be careful to think that that we are able to adapt, do things well. But again, if you map that forward to today, we've been pretty good in democratic states of cutting our carbon emissions. The UK has been pretty good. The US has been great and the European Union too. But that, that sort of presupposes that we have an enlightened form of doing things. And I think the jury is probably still out on how one judges that historically. And so you're right, we do have the ability to change our leaders. And the worlds I work in, almost all of them are unfree and becoming significantly less free over the last decade, you know, anywhere east of Istanbul. But in some cases, there have been sort of pretty good progress in some areas. But there's a price to pay for that, which is basic freedoms, human rights, criticizing the regimes and so on. So I don't think it's a straight shootout between one is better than the, the other. And one thing that you will hear a lot in the worlds I move in is that there's no such thing as a democracy or a, or a dictatorship. There are lots of autocracies, but they're very different in their shapes and colors and forms and ways they do things. Some are much more oppressive than others. And likewise, in democracies, there are lots of different shades. So I think it's it's all about outcomes. I mean, that's really the right question. Who delivers the best outcomes? It is right that the ability to change your leaders does mean that you can, from the bottom up, change policy. But you know, yeah. China, there are hundreds of thousands of protests every year. A lot of those protests over the last decade have been about environmental standards and ecological pressures. And that has led to a cleaning up of lots of parts of China in ways which we we probably should be paying quite a bit of attention. So mm. that's not to give a free pass to the Communist Party of China, to all the kinds of human rights issues that we need to talk about. But you know, it's not a straight shootout between apples and pears. Let's turn to the second strand, namely how human history has changed our physical environment. You say quite early on in chapter four of the book, by around 3500 BC, the human impact on the environment was not just changing, but was becoming so significant that it had itself become a factor in changing ecological habitats of flora and fauna. That date, I suspect, will surprise quite a few people. I think we default to the position that, well, you know, the serious impact of humans on the environment is kind of a industrial revolution thing. It's not, is it? It goes a long, long way back. Yeah, look, I think we've been remodelling the world around us, you know, trying to harness nature and its wonderful resources for good and for bad. But as we teach children, actions have consequences. And if you exceed your environmental envelope, then then there's a disaster. So, you know, one obvious point is about feeding cities. And in pre-industrial revolution, where all agriculture is all to do with human labor, you know, a lot depends on soil chemistry. And soil chemistry is a product both of the natural world and, and of water and of sunlight, etc., but also as how hard they're worked. And there's a tension between trying to get the land to produce as much as possible and what's the correct amount that you should do. And there's a huge amount of sensitivity about that uh, going back long, long into the past of leaving fields fallow or trying to learn from when things go wrong. Some of my colleagues argue that particularly rice cultivation four and a half thousand years ago produces lots of methane so much that the atmospheric conditions start to change. And that's quite a controversial view. And what that's trying to solve is why do we detect signals that are changing? And it would seem entirely logical to me to see that as we live more intensively and exploit things in in more unified ways, it's likely that there are going to be changes to how we do things. Ultimately, yes. we, we have to work within the framework of the blessings we're given from the sky. So the rainfall levels, the precipitation, and then to try to live within within those limits with a bit to spare. But it's not, I think, a great surprise 
that over the course of many thousands of years, humans have often pushed that envelope too far. And that's why the great cities of the past in the Indus Valley, Mahajadaro, Harappa, you know, listeners will have maybe been to those or to Uruk and Babylon, Nineveh, etc. They're not there anymore because if you get things wrong, it's curtains. Yeah. So if we've been affecting the wider environment for basically for as long as we've been civilised, it's also striking, what particularly struck me, that our awareness of that, our consciousness of the dangers of that, is also very ancient. You quote Duke Mu of Shan, 524 BC, a senior official in China, warning of the dangers of unsustainable cutting down of forests of the mountains. Again, that really surprised me how early that was. Is our awareness of our deleterious effect on the environment as old as our effect on the environment? It's a great question. Look, I reckon 200 years ago, people would have been much more aware and much more thoughtful about the natural world. Lots of concern about changing climate patterns, about water. So it's partly that we've forgotten all of that. There are lots of possible reasons. One might be that we have been so excited by scientific innovation that we've assumed that science can beat everything, right? That you can invent your way out of a problem and you can scale out of a problem. And, you know, that has been correct in lots of cases. But you could go back to the book of Genesis, again, sacred to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about eating an apple, right? Or about a snake being a dangerous animal that you should, a bit crafty and you shouldn't listen to. It's that the world is perfectly formed by God or by the divine to give you everything you need. If you behave in an immoral way, the punishment is specifically ecological. Right? It's not just you've done something wrong. Adam and Eve are punished by being kicked out of the perfect environmental conditions into a world where they have to fear the baking sun. They have to fear the rains. They have to scramble in the thistles and the weeds to try to plant. They have to work the land and hurt their backs by being backbreaking work. So the origin stories of the earth, and they're very similar, by the way, in, in Mesopotamian cultures, in Mesoamerican cultures, in China too. It's that Humans, by transgressing, by choosing to behave badly, the punishment is always ecological environmental pain. Mm. And I think, I think that as we pushed the divine and pushed God out of the equation and pushed beliefs into a world where rationality overcomes, one could make the slightly provocative case, which is that the, the punishment is that you then make yourself much, much more exposed because morality goes out the window. You make your money as fast as you can, regardless of who suffers. So People have always been worried about what the human impact has been on the environment. I just think it's a story that we we forgot. And I think that today, clever people, when they come to my university or other universities, you get a certificate in the end saying you're a genius. But you know how many graduate students know how to grow a carrot or know <laughs> how, to, how to harvest potatoes, let alone harvest wheat or process it? Tim Smith, who set up the Eden Project, I once did something with him. And he was like, surely the cleverest people should be the ones, you know, we should be saying farming is what, it's food and water. Those should be the people who have seats in the House of Lords rather than people who could translate Sanskrit texts. Yeah. We, we credentialize the priesthood made knowledge and ideas noisy and loud. So I think it's just that that's about the triumph of knowledge and of information. And there, there's a downside to that too. So if it was up to me and I had a magic wand, I, I would make sure that all children don't just learn about the history of environmental ecological change, but they, they don't just learn how to cook things, but they learn how to grow things. They learn when you flush the loo, where does it go? What happens to your excreta? What happens to the water when you filter it? How do we deal with pollutions in great cities like London or Oxford, where we're, we're below 
World Health Organization safe levels. So telling young people these are the problems, how do we solve them, would seem to be quite an important way of doing things rather than just teaching them about kings and queens of England. Yeah. I want to pick up on the religious dimension to this, which I find particularly interesting, and your very important point about the centrality of an ecological dimension to the Genesis narrative. You do, at the same time, pick up in the book on the famous Lynn White thesis of the 1960s, which pretty much lays the entire blame of environmental catastrophe on what Lynn White deemed as the anthropocentric view of Judeo-Christianity. You don't hold that, do you? White argument is that basically it's white people who've destroyed the world. And I think that speaks in the first instance to a profound Eurocentrism that we don't think about other people in other parts of the world at all. So if you were to say, what's the, what's the data set? What was the environmental change and damage in West Africa, in pre-Columbian America, in India, South Asia, in China? I can tell you that most people can give a very short answer to that question because they don't know a single name of a single leader. It speaks to the guilt of Western European thought of seeing that the world had been reshaped by Western empires that date from, I suppose, the 1600s onwards. And there's some logic to that, right? So by the start of the First World War, every single part of Africa had been colonized by European powers, apart from Liberia and Ethiopia. And so that footprint of what the West did would make sense in the 20th century context to say the West took over the world. And so you can see why uh, Lynn White would say that, but I can show you countless examples of catastrophic collapse of ecosystems in other parts of the world that are done by the same struggles for power, the same misuse of capital, the same pressures to raise and generate taxes, the same behaviours by elites to try to enslave other people to produce for them. So I just think that we, we probably need to move away from the idea that we are unique in those systems. You make the point, it's greed and personal gain at the heart of this. But I wonder, let me play devil's advocate here slightly about Lynn White's deeper thesis, which is, okay, greed and personal gain, they're pretty much human norms, but the Judeo-Christian tradition has an anthropocentrism that legitimised them in a way that wasn't the case elsewhere. That was the key point, wasn't it? How do yeah. you respond to that? Well, I don't think that's right either. I think that if you read the Vedic texts, they're all absolutely hierarchically set on on control of the natural world as well. Same with, with Buddhism, where the point of Buddhism is not, again, how it seems to lots of people today about renewal and being careful with your environment. The key point of Buddhism is that everything dies, right? Every plant, animal, human. So don't enjoy any of it because it's all transient and pointless. But you know what is correct is that the Western states and the Western worlds, and I mean specifically Western Europe and their kind of settler colonies in the United States, South America, North America, South America, Australia, and so on, and then Africa later, is that they had technologies that allowed them to affect those changes at an unprecedented scale. So what the Industrial Revolution does is it allows the remodeling of environments to be done unbelievably intensively and quickly and dangerously. But, you know, we're just about to start COP later this week, COP28. China and its environmental signature, forget about outside China, but even internally, where levels of groundwater are so polluted that they're unusable. The pollutions of arable lands far worse than anything we see anywhere in Western Europe or United States or, or Western worlds. Or India, so much groundwater taken out of the northern Indian plain that the position of the north and the south poles have moved, right? That wow can't be labelled as uh, Judeo-Christian, that can't really be labelled as Western. And, you know, one would struggle, I think, to try and blame one people and say that these people are worse than anybody else. One has to step back and 
separate the legacies of empire and separate the the challenges of explaining slavery, explaining exploitation, etc., in a way that is more globally robust. And that, I think, is something that has changed since I wrote my Silk Road book, that the idea that we can only focus on Western Europe and the West, which was basically the way history had been written for the last 400 years in Europe and the United States, that has now mercifully started to change. But, you know, even in my world, 94% of history faculty in the UK work on the West. The level of expertise in the Middle East, in China, Central Asia, Southeast Asia is essentially zero. So to give you a sort of headline number, today in the UK, there are less than a thousand students studying Arabic, Farsi, Russian, Chinese, Thai, Khmer, Korean, Turkish, Japanese. So that's mm. out of a peer group of about 800,000, right? So wow. it is essentially zero. So our knowledge of these parts of the world would lead everybody else to say, yes, it's all the fault of the West. And there are lots of things that are the fault of the West, but you know, everybody carries their sins. Our, our sins are very recent and very big, but they are not unique. Hmm. Now, I began by saying there were two streams in the book, how the physical environment has changed human history and how human history has changed the physical environment. And while it might possibly once have been the case that those two could be considered separately, the further we go through human history, the more inextricably linked they become. And that's very obviously the case today with climate change. I was struck by the way in which we have understood climate change in some form or fashion for several hundred years or so and been warning about it. I mean, you quote the 1957 academic paper, human beings are now carrying out a large scale geophysical experiment of a kind that could not have happened in the past. And that was 60 plus years ago. But also how there have occasionally been counter warnings. The Washington Post in January 1970, saying, is mankind manufacturing a new ice age for itself? At what point did this become absolutely settled, do you think? Well, you're going to have listeners who don't think it's settled now. I think that <laughs> climate denialism is a really important and serious issue. And uh, I mean, among the scientific consensus. Well, scientific consensus is 99%. So there's a, a sample done, which is not my measurement, but of the tens of thousands of scientific papers around science, there is a 1% group that does dispute both the scale and even the nature and the consequences of climate change. Where it became clear, I mean, in the 1970s, the CIA were writing about the long-term impacts of climate change and the stress that's put on the developing world. I think it's been known for a long time that deforestation levels, soil salinities, the ways in which the natural world is changing because of the way we treat it goes back thousands of years. I think that the difference is trying to understand the very complex global weather systems that are not simple to explain and understand. They are highly unpredictable. It's not a linear world where things are changing. Even the kind of the signature of 1.5 degrees centigrade rise, that's not, that's averaged out across the world. Europe is warming far faster than any other continents. Mm. You know, I write also in my book that the Russian national anthem has a verse that says, as the world starts to warm, we're going to be richer and be able to open up those the parts of the permafrost <laughs> of Siberia into productive lands. And it doesn't quite say exactly that, but it says as the world is changing, Russia is going to become a, a greater power. And unfortunately, that's probably right in terms of yeah. the ecologies. It doesn't mean that that's good news for anybody, possibly not even for the Russians. What actually is happening now, the thing that I'm most worried about are, of course, about water shortage and about unpredictability. And it's when you suddenly have a harvest shock, uh, those price spikes are severe, and we don't pay enough attention to those. So sugar price at the moment is the highest it's been for 10 years. Sugar crop in Thailand has more or less failed. It's going to be down 40%. India stopped exporting rice this year because of 
pressures on rice supply. And those kinds of things to a historian like me start to speak to don't celebrate too early about inflation coming under control and we're going to go back to a nice happy world in the United Kingdom where prices stabilize. Those inflationary pressures are really hard to absorb. You know, I saw some figures this morning about the average cost of Thanksgiving suppers, dinners in the United States up 25% this year, was up 25% last year. And so Mm. those kinds of things, they start to be a function of the fact that big weather events have costs. Let's conclude our conversation where you conclude the book. Your final chapter brings the story right up to date. And it's one of the most sobering assessments of climate change I've, I've ever read. You say at one point, the anticipated economic shocks of the future connected to crop failures, food and water shortages, rising prices... Mass migration, rising levels of violence and increased prospects of warfare and the apocalyptic ways in which they are described are enough to turn the blood to ice. They, they, are, in, they are indeed. What are the prospects for the future in your mind? Well, look, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, that's the first thing. I hope that we can get ahead of all these problems. I hope that we can improve our agricultural productivity. I hope we can use AI to be able to detect and warn and mitigate against big weather events. I hope that we can use our water resources better. I hope we can do the amazing things we did with coronavirus when when pathogens come through again, zoonotic and otherwise. But if you play roulette, you know the casino normally wins. And I can tell you how that's the case with our species because there have been five mass extinction events where every single thing on Earth, or all but 5% of life on Earth, died out. And that will happen to us at some point, unless we're very, very lucky and evolutionarily a fluke, because you don't beat the bank. Yeah. It would be logical as a historian to think that we haven't found a way of thinking past problems. You know, the age of the West and the triumph of liberal democracy turns out that that was probably a little bit overenthusiastic. But all of these big building blocks of history, access to water and food, disease environments, ecological abilities to cope with envelopes, uh, new technologies that can reward the people who control them, but also have unintended consequences that we need to think through. All of those look like the wheels of history are turning at the same time. And for everything to go right all the time, you've got to be lucky. You know, I'm pragmatic that if you think as a historian, then you should anticipate and prepare for where those shocks are likely to come. And there's a lot going wrong in the world today. But as a negative historian, I would think, what is it now that happens that makes things go worse, rather than what the mainstream seems to be thinking in the world I work in, which is how do we get back to normal, bring inflation under control, get the war to an end in Ukraine, try to look for some kind of peaceful resolution in the Middle East, reopen negotiations with China, and let's all be happy and stand in a circle holding hands. That stuff in history doesn't happen. The book is called The Earth Transformed, An Untold History. Peter, Frank Pan, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Nick. And I'm going to kick myself all afternoon with better answers to all your questions. So sorry about that. <laughs> you can email them to me. <laughs> You've been listening to the final episode in the seventh series of Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. I want to express my thanks to all my guests this series. Peter Frankopan, Matthew Goodwin, David Bentley Hart... Penn Vogler, Cal Flynn, Linda Yu, Dan Dennett, and Philip Ball. I want to give a particular thanks to my brilliant producer, Phil Bodger, and to Nina Humphreys for her wonderful theme music. And to the team at Theos, Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom, and Chinny McDonald. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series. 
and I hope it's encouraged you to go out and buy and read some of the books we've been talking about. We'll be back for another series, but until then, take care.